0: Integrated Science of the Absolute Preliminaries Number 11 Dialectical approach to the notion of the absolute The absolute can be attained in many ways Some of them are more speculative and indirect while others are simple and direct When we start from simple everyday experience and attain the core of the notion or the reality of the absolute, we can be said to be more scientific in our approach. In this respect there is a method of approach favored by the Guru Narayana which seems to be very simple. He said that if we should think of a body it would be possible to divide it into parts, and each part could be further subdivided, thus visualized as being continued ad infinitum. At the term of such a process, the quantitative aspect of that body tends to get abolished and attains to a more qualitative status. In other words, the visible tends to become intelligible, having a mental or subjective rather than an objective existence. When this notion remains in the mind and is further conceived independently and purely as a reality or notion sufficient to itself, we attain the absolute. Other thinkers like Descartes have preferred to speculate on time or duration, which is within the inner experience of every human being. Pure duration, according to Descartes, is God. By this, he only means to say that it attains the status of the absolute. He is not necessarily thinking of the theological God of the scholastic context. Thus, we see two fundamental notions one of matter occupying space, and the other time filled with events. Both of which, when subjected to contemplative or scientific purification, can attain the absolute in a most direct and simple manner. Besides space and time, represented schematically, after the manner of Cartesian correlates, we can think of cause, as a third and very fundamental category. Cause implies effect and when related to the time axis it represents a link of a chain of successive alternating pairs of causes and effects. It is possible for us to think of the process of causes and effects operating in this world both prospectively and retrospectively. The former is called imagination, and the latter memory. At any given moment, anywhere, and with anybody, there is an eternal present, unequivocally established by philosophers like Plato and made acceptable to other philosophers. Causality as a principle can further be abstracted and generalized by the human mind being capable of such mathematical or scientific abstraction and generalization without knowing any limit. Herein lies the possibility of finding the central locus of all future scientific speculation, whether based on outer experiments or inner certitude. Thus, the principle of causality can be put on a pedestal of a universalized basis as functioning at the core of the process of becoming, to which the whole universe is subjected, as could be seen by all of us. Even scientists like Max Planck have been obliged in recent years to give this principle of causality its full recognition and status, although such matters were, until recently, considered outside the scope of physics and belonging to the outmoded so-called metaphysical way of thinking. Einstein has approved of Planck's stand on this subject, and with such approbation on the part of the Dean of Modern Scientific Thought, it is fully permissible for us to say that the principle of causality has once again been elevated an absolutist status. Thus, time, space and causality, when each of them is given its capital initial letter, can be considered as attaining, each by its own right, the status of the absolute. This way of thinking has long been accepted in the Platonic tradition. Plato could similarly treat notions such as beauty and elevate them by the purifying process of generalization and abstraction going on hand in hand, as it were, to the status of an absolute value, each by its own right. Attaining the absolute in this manner has, therefore, nothing unscientific nor unphilosophical about it when we further consider that causation, common as an abstract principle of life, lives in the heart of each of us, making it possible for us to live from one split second to another, while causality itself being nothing. We can locate this principle at the apperceptive core of all consciousness, whether it be human, animal, plant, or sub-organic life, giving it a fully psychological status. In the phenomenal world, it goes without saying, That the same principle has a cosmological status. Further, there is no objection in giving the same principle when fully glorified its theological status as Descartes and even Hegel have already done in philosophy. Max Planck's remarks here confirm what we have to say. Some essential modification seems to be inevitable. But I firmly believe in company with most physicists that the quantum hypothesis will eventually find its exact expression in certain equations which will be a more exact formulation of the law of causality. The principle of causality must be held to extend even to the highest achievements of the human soul. We must admit that the mind of each one of our greatest geniuses, Aristotle or Plato, Kant or Leonardo, Goethe or Beethoven, Dante or Shakespeare, even at the moment of its highest flights of thought, or in the most profound inner workings of the soul, was subject to the causal fiat and was an instrument in the hands of an almighty law which governs the world." We now quote Einstein, who wrote a foreword to Planck's book and is in complete agreement with what Planck said. Quotation. I am entirely in agreement with our friend Planck in regard to the stand which he has taken on the principle. He admits the impossibility of applying the causal principle to the inner processes of atomic physics under the present state of affairs. But he has set himself definitely against the thesis that from this unbrachbarki or inapplicability, we are to conclude that the process of causation does not exist in external reality. Planck has already not taken up any definite standpoint here. He has only contradicted the emphatic assertions of some quantum theorists, and I fully agree with him. And when you mention people who speak of such a thing as free will in nature, it is difficult for me to find a suitable reply. The idea is, of course, preposterous. Honestly, I cannot understand what people mean when they talk about freedom of the human will. From the above discussion, we are able to extract a schematic outline which will be of great linguistic help to us for our purpose. The essence of time is its continuity as a process, tracing itself on the purest of notions of duration and, as we have said, it can attain an absolute status. Space, on the other hand, whether thought of pluralistically or as being merely empty of plurality when schematized can be represented after the principle underlying Cartesian correlates by a line at right angles to time. We can represent it to ourselves as consisting of a contiguous rather than a continuous line extending horizontally and numerically rather than qualitatively grading into more and more virtuality, or actuality, as it traces itself on the abscissa, on the plus or minus side, according to its location. Such a schematic representation must have its own correct degree, both of subjectivity and objectivity, and has to be neutralized between these two opposites in the human mind at one and the same time. It is in the world of qualitative values where such a schema can hold good and not in the world of mere quantitative things. Matter and mind have to attain here an equal degree of transparency between them to make participation between the two correlates possible on homogeneous and neutral ground. Further aspects of this schematic representation will be elaborated later. Here it might be in place to add that almost any fundamental notion can be subjected to the kind of treatment we have adopted above. In the first instance, the notion can be subjected to an abstraction and generalization, and then it can be fitted into a schema. The first part of the process can be recognized as belonging to mathematical symbolism, as what prevails in algebraic calculations. The second way of abstraction and generalization corresponds rather to the method known to geometry. We know in analytic geometry, and more so in modern post Hilbertian algebra of geometry, that one discipline corresponds to the discipline of the other when structurally or schematically understood. Thus, we can take the notion of truth and give it a neutral normative status in the context of the Absolute. When the Upanishads speak of the one eternal female or of gods such as Vishnu or Shiva, they tend, as in Plato, to give such notions a fully normalized and absolutist status. There are, however, slight epistemological asymmetries, implicit or explicit, in the standpoints natural to various philosophers which we have to make allowances for when we are thinking of a fully corrected version of the same before they could be considered fully normalized, both from the algebraic and the geometrical sides. Each fundamental notion can be given its legitimate central value, whether considered as a reference or a referent for human understanding, treated in its most all-comprehensive sense.